The family unit is crumbling in America. I don't think this is really news to anyone. For the vast majority of our nation's history, the family served as a stabilizing force in our society. When I was a boy in school, we knew some kids whose parents were divorced, but there weren't many of them. I lived on the East Coast. It was a pretty progressive area, but there just weren't that many kids in the school whose parents didn't live together. Today, sociologists claim that the majority of American students who graduate from high school this spring will not be living with both parents. The majority. Sociologists also note that one of the predictable results of family breakdown in our society is the growth in gangs. Now, The problem of gangs is no longer isolated to the inner city, though it's certainly a problem there. But rural areas and small towns are being increasingly affected across the United States. And it's not difficult to put together young people lacking the structure and stability provided by a loving family are uniquely susceptible to gang recruiters. Think of what they're offering. They offer structured authority. It may be very twisted, but it's there. They offer a sense of belonging, of accountability, of physical protection, and the approval and loyalty of peers. Making the appeal even more tantalizing, gang recruiters say yes to everything everybody else wants to say no to, it seems, for young people. They prey on the adolescent's thirst for adventure, easy money, sexual indiscipline, and self-importance. And the appeal takes particular advantage of young people's sense of invincibility and their deficient appreciation of the future consequences of their actions. It's a loud voice. And it's an appealing voice. Now we need to admit here that it's not only vulnerable teens from broken families who get sucked in by the temptations of the gang. And it's not only gangs that tap the lust for power, adventure, sensuality, easy money, and the like. I mean, is there really a lot of difference between a gang member coming to you and saying, join us, we're going to rob a convenience store tonight, and the billboard on the side of the highway that says, play the lottery and win $50 million today? Is there a lot of difference there? I realize one is legal and the other is not, but it's seeking to appeal to the craving that we have for adventurous risk and easy money. In fact, everywhere we go in this waking world, there are voices calling us to yield to our sinful urges and to cut corners on the path to happiness. And these appeals play on our spiritual immaturity, tempting us to stray from the path of moral discipline and the fear of God, which brings us back to the text of Proverbs this morning. I invite you there to chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We introduced the book last week, and let me by way of very brief review, say again that the purpose of the book of Proverbs, it's an instructional manual from God written to train us to live skillfully and to help us become discerning people. 
It's a gift from God. It is His counsel to us in this book how to live life the way He designed it to be lived and thus to glorify Him as our all-wise Creator. So the book calls those who long to be discerning, who long to have insight, who want to live life skillfully. Now remember, secondly, the target audience. It's something unique. It helps us to understand, to translate, interpret the book. But the target audience of the book, it's directed to adolescents. That is, directly to young people who have entered a stage of life it's characterized by, first of all, rapid physical development. Secondly, heightened sensitivity to peer pressure. And then there are, this is a time of life where the hard questions really become difficult to manage. Who am I and what do I believe? What do I really believe? And then a deficient capacity to see future consequences of one's actions. That sort of epitomizes who adolescents are and the book is written directly to them. But remember, as I mentioned last week, we're all stuck at age 14 somewhere. Every one of us here. That's older than 14. (laughs) We're stuck at age 14. You can be 85 here today and somewhere you just never shifted out of that gear. And so the book is written really to all of us who see our immaturity, who understand that we don't know how to live life successfully, who continue to run into the consequences of the choices that we've made and we hate the consequences but we have no idea how to avoid them in the future. This book is for us. It's written to get us out of the muck of immaturity and to put our feet on solid ground and to walk the ways of God to His glory and to our everlasting joy. That's why this book is given. Let me say thirdly, by way of introduction again, we must conceive of the foundations of wisdom. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Proverbs 1, I'm sorry, verse 7 of chapter 1, 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord, that is the first and controlling principle in gaining wisdom, becoming skillful in living, and developing discernment, is to reverence God. Without a deep reverential awe of God, that has deep respect for His Word, we will not develop skillful living. That is, we will not develop the skill of reading people, of making plans properly, of tackling problems and handling trials, of anticipating future outcomes, and generally of decoding life as it was designed to work. Without the fear of God, we'll get nowhere. But with a reverence for God, a sensitivity to His Word and to His counsel, we can begin to put together a life that works, that's skillful, and that knows the joy that God intended. Now in verses 8 and 9, so let's consider carefully again, verse 7 is the theme of the book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise that wisdom and instruction. Now as we come to verse 8, the author presents two competing voices. And I think this is significant to our understanding of the book. One voice 
calls us to a life of wisdom in the fear of the Lord. The other is an appeal to pursue a life of folly. Two voices. And we are meant to, in a sense, see ourselves here in this text with a voice on either side, calling us, pulling us, appealing to us to go this direction. There's a gravitational pull each way. And we have to make a decision as to where we're going to bend and how we're going to walk. The wise father's instruction is the first voice that we hear coming out of the gate. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now here's voice one. And it is a call to heed the parental voice of wisdom. Verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. As we narrow in on verse 8, we find here a strong impassioned plea for the son to honor his parents' words of godly counsel. This is not a son who's left to himself. This is a son that has a father pleading with him to say, Here! Uh, anybody that's dabbled in Hebrew at all, the word here is Shema. And the word teaching here in verse 8 is Torah. We hear echoes here of the great Shema, the word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. We hear echoes of that great Shema. And the teaching, the Torah, the counsel of God. I think then subtly with these echoes in our mind as we hear these words, at the end of the day, the parents' voices seem to mix with God's call to love the Lord with all of our heart and to honor His words of counsel. And so I think it is right for us to draw this implication, this inference from this passage. Parents are to speak for God. That does not mean they always do. It does not mean they are flawless representatives of the Lord's will. But God has ordained that children obey their parents, and He has ordained that parents provide their children with an authoritative reference point for life. All children, then, are to be homeschooled. You may choose to employ the teaching of others in the process, but in the, at the end of the day, the instruction that ultimately matters is what takes place in your home is the moral training of your children. And the curriculum in that most important class of all is the fear of the Lord. Without that, we teach our children nothing ultimately that matters. They must be taught the fear of the Lord. And here we have a mother and a father both lifting up their voices and proclaiming this truth. So the parents speak for God... But I'd like to also note here that both parents speak for God. The role of the mother in Proverbs is unique in ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. The mother is not chattel. She's not merely a womb for her husband's children, as would have been the case in many of the cultures surrounding Israel at the time. She has an integral role in training her children in the fear of the Lord. In Proverbs the husband always leads in the dissemination of moral instruction. He's always presented in the front position. 
Because that's his responsibility. He needs to stand up as God has placed that calling upon him to lead his home. But mother and father always speak with one voice. That's the ideal. They form a united front against the immaturity and unsettled folly of adolescence. And maybe I talked to a few kids here, it just plain irritates you when mom and dad always agree. And, every, and it seems like it's always against what you think we ought to do, what you think you ought to be free to do. Well, if your mom and dad are always agreeing with each other and always disagreeing with you, at least step back and think maybe that's actually good. Because their voice is consistent. They speak together for God. And there's a lot of learning that's taking place in their life and in yours as well. But the voices speaking together, saying, Hear our instruction, hear our teaching. Verse 9, because they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. The leafy garland was a wreath worn on the head as a symbol of prosperity and good health, of honor and life, vibrant life. People who wore a garland in Israeli culture, they were headed to a party. They were headed to celebrate some victory. They were in some way rejoicing with good news or something of the sort. So garland wearers typically had a smile on their face and a spring in their steps. Life was good when you had a garland on. The counsel of your mother and father, the teacher says here, is a garland to you. It's a source of vibrant life of adornment as well with the pendant worn around the neck to beautify and to, again, celebrate the goodness of life. So when children heed the wise counsel of a godly mother and father who speak with one voice, that counsel adorns and beautifies the child's life, giving it vibrancy and success. So, specifically to the youth among us, and to all of us who are stuck in our immaturities. If you want to live a beautiful life, if you want to live skillfully, choose to listen to the wise counsel of your parents. Make that choice. Rather than lining yourself up to resist it, line yourself up to heed it and hear it. Others, undoubtedly, you're going to do a thousand things differently than they're instructing you to do someday along the way. But if you're in their home, listen to their word. If you've got a parent who's telling you not to do things and telling you to do other things, thank God. There's a great blessing there. And parents, we need to ask the question, and and by parents I mean not only those with children in the home, but those outside the home, and all of us as adults, as we work to parent the children of this church on some level, Are we instructing our children in the fear of the Lord? Are we providing faithful counsel such that if they really followed what we taught them, they would lead a life of moral skill? Not just teaching them how to do certain things, but teaching them how life is put together. What is its purpose? What is its defining power and strength? Are we steering them with our counsel to live a beautiful life? 
The passion in the Father's counsel here is directly related to the conviction that what He is teaching is life-saving and life-giving. You must hear Me. You must hear My voice. Now in contrast to the parental call to heed wisdom, another voice is now sounded. Beginning at verse 10, that's introductory and that's a thesis statement. But as what will follow is another voice that's sounded. And the Son is exhorted then secondly, not only to heed the parental voice of wisdom, but at verse 10, to reject the enticing appeal of folly. Again, the thesis statement, verse 10. My Son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. I'm appealing to you. There's going to be another voice out there appealing to you. When sinners entice you, do not give in. Now, it says if. That's, that's the kind of if that's really a when. The understanding is if sinners entice you, and they are certain to do so, then respond in this way. Young people who are moral fools plug their ears when their parents instruct them, and they tune their ears to the alluring voice of sinners. Now sinners, as all of us, of course, but here in this context, sinners are people who do not fear God. They are people who do not care about God's counsel. They're willing to violate His law. In fact, God's law stands in their way. They want fun. They want to do things their way. And God always seems to be getting in the way of that. That's the idea of sinners here in this context. When that kind of person appeals to you, don't listen. They love to urge and persuade us to join their godless ways, but don't do it. So the picture is here, again, on one side, parents who see themselves as stewards of a biblical worldview calling the, parent, the child to listen, to heed. And on the other hand is the gang with its alluring, enticing appeal to abandon constraints and to join the fun. Forget the parents. Forget God. Come with us. When sinners entice you, don't consent. And now, the Father in His instruction fleshes that out in a very memorable way. Verse 11, If they say, Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. If they say that to you, reject their words. So the picture here is a gang of cold-hearted thugs. You notice here they plan to hide in the shadows. They plan to uh, jump an unsuspecting and defenseless passerby in order that they can inflict physical harm. We don't care if we kill him. And in order that they can put his money into their pockets. That's our plan. And you'll notice here the victim is innocent. And they even say that. He's innocent. So the motivation is what? Without reason. They even admit that as an innocent individual and there's no reason for doing this to harm him. It's what we call senseless violence. But they want to know, and they want you to know, I should say, that this is no lame group of vigilantes scheming to enforce justice on their own. That's not us. This bunch would not be caught dead doing the right thing. 
They prey on victims because they want to play like little gods in this world. They want to determine the rules. They take perverse pride in dictating the terms. In fact, they want to play death itself. Verse 12, like Sheol, like the grave, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. You see the power play here. We're going to have the power of death itself. We will determine if that person walking down the street is going to live or die. The appeal is to power, to excitement, to camaraderie. What is more, verse 13, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. What's that? As easy money, immediate success. And no work, only exciting, thrilling adventure that leads to profit. That's it. I mean, how could you turn that down? Walke writes, they want immediate wealth outside the limits of law rather than the deferred wealth that comes through the development of character within law. So through intimidation and violence, they transfer the wealth of others into their own bank accounts. And you notice this subtly? They've got the houses to put it in. We'll store it in our houses. We're doing really, really well. Come and join us. Come in among us. Throw in, verse 14, throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. You see the offer here. Join us and you get a fair cut of the take just like the rest of us. Right away, you're a partner. You're a partner in our firm. We'll split up the money after we've done our damage. You'll have the time of your life doing it. Come on. What's to stop you? Join in. We notice here is we, we know, but... Sinners love company. And I think it's a good idea to just park on for a moment. Sinners love company. Camaraderie has an almost universal appeal. At least on the surface of things, they are willing to reduce their profit in order to have another partner in crime join the fun. Now, we realize there's a lot more going on here. And if this guy joins them and gets in the way, they'll abandon him in a moment's notice. But none of that's stated. It looks like really a sweet offer, doesn't it? You join us and immediately we'll split the profits with you. You're right in among us. And they'd rather sacrifice some of that profit in order to have someone join them. It's the mystery of iniquity. Well, the Father's counsel to this alluring appeal is given again in verse 15. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Listen to me. These people are your peers. These people are making an offer that's difficult to refuse. They can put immense pressure upon you. Do not walk with them. Don't go there, says the Father. Why? The rationale, verse 16, 
For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. God's law says you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. This is what God's counsel is to us. This is His Word. These individuals are running into the Word of God. They're running against it. They're opposing it. They do not fear God. So the son that does fear God must learn to resist their enticing appeal. What they are doing is evil, verse 16. What is more, verse 17, in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Now there's a lot of debate about the meaning of verse 17. I'll I'll admit that, but I think, and I'll give you my conclusion, I think the idea and and all of the different opinions are fairly close. But I think the idea here is that even a bird is smart enough not to land on the fowler's net. I mean, you go running through the woods with a net swinging over your head after a bird, and the bird gets the picture pretty quickly. It's time to get out of here. And you lay that net down, and you put seed on top of it. That bird's not going to come and eat that seed right away, so you can get it in your net. Even a bird's that smart, I think, is the idea. These guys aren't. Ironically, the gang of sinners not only fails to avoid the net, they lay the net themselves. And they get caught in it. That's what's happening here. They're telling you about all the wonderful things that are going to happen. Let me tell you what's really going to happen. So we might illustrate it just a bit differently, but there's some buddies that go hunting and they, they walk ten miles into the woods and realize they forgot their ammo. <laughs> oh man, now what? Uh, what do we do here? Uh, one of them had a small shovel in his belongings and, and they say, hey, let's, let's, let's not go all the way back. Let's dig a pit. So they dig this deep pit and they put tree branches over it and leaves and they've noticed that there's a trail here where deer are clearly running pretty consistently and they're pretty sure if they put this trap here that the the deer is going to fall into it and they're all ready and say okay let's hide and they start walking away and the one guy says wait a minute i forgot the shovel and he goes back for the shovel and he walks into the pit and falls in he's dug his own pit and fallen into it that picture is the outcome of gang activity you're going to fall into the pit you've dug for yourself. You think you're going to step back and you're going to play little gods and you're going to take things for yourself and you're going to really win at this? No, you are going to fall into the pit you dug for yourself. That's where these guys are going, son. Don't go with them. Says Again, in the the specific and actual setting of the book of Proverbs, as the father talks to the son, That, my son, he says, is where they're headed. Don't go there. This will not end well. That's not how the moral universe works. There's a reason we know about gangs. People got caught. Lives were ended. The gang does not see that future for what it really is. As Derek Kidner puts it so memorably, he says, you've got to get this. The sting is in the tail. The sting 
is in the tail. At first, they seem invincible. At first, all seems so good, but the sting is in the tail. The sting is at the end. It's the trouble that comes. Raleigh, North Carolina, a couple of years ago, community leaders met with current and former gang members to investigate why they join gangs in the hopes of somehow understanding and working with these young people and keeping others out of gangs. One gang member by the name of James said this, and I quote, Don't nobody really want to be on the corner selling drugs all day. But kids look at the Bloods and the Crips and think, this is my way out. Now listen to what he says. This is a, a young gang member. He says, but you end up dead or in jail or someplace that's not good. This young man who's lived a life of folly in listening to this voice honestly tells us the same thing that God is warning us about. You end up in a place that's not good. The spiritually naive, the moral simpleton, the fool who does not fear God, fails to appreciate the future consequences of his actions. And we recognize that as we, as we deal with adolescents. We've got to continue to help them to try to see the future. This isn't going to lead into a good place. But young people need parents. They need adults. They need authority figures who can see down the road like that and help them to understand this doesn't end well. And praise God if you have such a voice in your life. Indeed, this Bible, this Word, is that voice from our Heavenly Father to every one of us. To say there is an appeal in sin. I'm thankful that this is the case with Scripture. It never pretends that sin is not pretty. It talks about the allure, the temptation, the beauty on the front end. But learning to live wisely, we are counseled that the sting is in the tail. And we learn what to avoid. What looks attractive on the outside that must be rejected. This is the path of wisdom. And the section closes with this concluding mark, concluding word in verse 19, a general statement about crime. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. The path of sinners ends in death. When the One of the stupidest things that sinners, including this one, but one of the stupidest things that sinners say is, I can get away with it. I can sin and escape the consequences. Here's God's word of wisdom. No, you can't. We never get away with sin. That's not how this universe is set up. It's not how it works. It's not how God designed it. And He's running it. You don't get away with sin. There's always a price to be paid. The bill always comes due. We reap what we sow. Now having said that, we gather here sitting up straight 
and with joy in our heart because we know the gospel. And we know that the wages of sin is death. We know we get what we sow. But we also know that Jesus Christ came as God's Son, living a perfect life and then laying down that sinless life in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. We know that though we deserve nothing but God's judgment and nothing but the horrible fruits of our sin, that God in His grace sends Christ to pay that penalty to deliver us from the judgment of God and in His resurrection power to give us life and to give us new life. That's our hope. That's why we come with thanksgiving as we consider God's Word. Yet, having said that, which is the ultimate and most important point, yet a price is paid by the sinner. It is not a price paid for our salvation. Christ paid that. He alone could pay that. But there is a price to sin in this life. We suffer the natural consequences of living out of sync with the Creator's will. It's simply like walking to the edge of a cliff and jumping off. Gravity's going to overtake the situation and it's not going to end well. And so it is when we sin. Yes, we have the rescue of Christ, but there are consequences to violating His call and His Word. So after staking this thesis in verse 7 then, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs immediately draws two pictures. And again, I think this is important. There are two voices that meet us right out of the gate. Two voices pulling us in radically different directions the listening ear that fears the Lord and the morally foolish ear that refuses instruction are not philosophical concepts that we're going to kick around here in the beauty of of this setting and just go home and forget about it. It's going to face us when we walk out those doors. There's gang members. There's voices that appeal to you. There's the counsel of godly people and parents and we're going to face these voices. And again, I think it would be very dull on our parts, and just knowing what we know about the rest of Proverbs is enough, to limit this message to an anti-gang diatribe. It is that. The first title I put on this sermon was, Don't Join a Gang. It is that. It's what he's saying to the son. He loves him enough to say, don't do that. But listen, it's about a lot more than just that the same dynamic. Think of this appeal of the gang to the naive adolescent. The same dynamic, the same sort of alluring voice is heard when a man is solicited to join in on a shady business plan or urged by his co-workers to cheat on the company books and to pocket the proceeds or something like that. Join us in this. Come along. It'll be good. We'll be enriched. It's easy money. Same voice. Different circumstances. It's the same voice that's heard when a teen is enticed to lose himself in a world of illicit sex on the internet. Or when a wife is lured into the world of illicit romantic fantasy in some trashy novel during the day. Or 
all sorts of other circumstances, the same voice is there. Come on in. Forget the voice of God. Get it now. The alluring voice of the gang recruiter is not substantially different from the voice pressing a family into a get-rich-quick scheme that promises loads of money for minimal effort. If anybody's on you about that, just run. Those voices are out there. This voice might even be heard from a gaggle of girlfriends intent on forming a clique that specializes in slurping up juicy gossip. Join us. we got some secretive, risky things to talk about. Nobody else can get in. These voices are everywhere in this world. They're all around us, calling us to spurn the fear of the Lord. No matter who you are today, whatever age, male or female, you are going to face these voices. I face them. We hear them. They're calling us and drawing us away. So God's saying, you want to learn skillful wisdom? Here's where it starts. No, there's always going to be an appeal to do right and an appeal to do wrong. And you've got to learn to navigate that. Everywhere we go in this world, there is this voice. And at the core of such messages is the foolish idea that we can somehow get away with it. And that in turning a deaf ear to God, we will somehow get free access to greater fun, Increased power, easy money, fame, enjoyment, and the like. The strictures of God's Word, the boundaries, we get the sense that is meant to harm us, to take away some pleasure, rather than to realize that those boundaries are meant for our life. And getting outside of those boundaries is nothing but disaster. The stinger is in the tail. And so, here's skillful living lesson 101. To know that there will be these competing voices, and then to develop the maturity to be able to say no to what will harm me and what will draw me away from Christ's path. Now that power to listen to Christ's voice does not come from within us. On this side of the cross, we see this so much more clearly. But because Jesus Christ has come to pay the penalty of our sin, for those of us who place our faith and our trust in Him and are born again, there now is a new orientation and a new power in our lives. And this grace, as Titus 2 puts it, trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The power to live in such a way comes from our salvation in Christ. He empowers us now to think differently, to act differently, and to avoid such disaster. So our hope is not in our innate goodness. Let's all get together here. Let's have a a cheering session and all tell one another that we can really do this. 
No, but God's grace working in us can aid us and help us to continue to mature in our ability to discern the wrong voice and to say no. And to discern the right voice and to say, that is my life. Not, oh, i got to do what God says, because I know it always goes bad if I don't. But rather with joy to say, that's my life. That's where I sail along in life. That's my freedom in His laws and His guidelines. Our hope is in our union with Jesus Christ in the power of the indwelling Spirit and in the revelation that God has left for us in His Word. Whose voice are you heeding today? Heeding the call to moral folly means here that we have now a call to turn in repentance and to leave that path of folly. If we're hearing the Word of God, then by His grace... The guidelines are narrow. But that never bothered the train. A train runs on a very narrow track, but it hums along happily as long as it's on that track. Get off the track, and it's not what you call freedom. It's what you call a train wreck. And I may speak to someone here today, your life's a train wreck. Honestly speaking, the decisions that you're making in life, the focus of your life, the direction that you've taken, it's a train wreck. I rejoice to say Jesus Christ came to rescue train wreck victims. He came to put your life back together. Come to Him. It's not going to start by you getting certain things figured out and starting to try to add up to what He's asking you to do. It's going to come as you go to chapter 1 and verse 7 and say, I've got to start with the fear of the Lord. I've got to start with the reverence for God and His Word. Come to Him. He specializes in putting lives back together. For those of us who know Him as Savior, as we stay on the track of His Word, it is our life. It is our joy. And let's rejoice that we have a Father that says, don't listen to that voice. We have a Father that loves us to say, go this way. And gives us direction. I'm thankful. He's not always easy on us. But He always tells us the truth. Heed the Word of the Lord. It is our life. Father, We thank You for Your wisdom. We do not deserve this gift. But I pray that You will help us as broken people, as immature people, to break from those patterns that so hold us down. I pray that You even now would break the bonds of sin in the lives of some of Your people that are stuck and mired in the muck. I pray, Father, in behalf of those who do not know You as Savior, I pray that You do a rescue operation here today. That You bring somebody to see it's not about this church, it's not about this message, 
ultimately it's about what Jesus Christ has done to rescue sinners and give them skillful life. I pray that you bring someone to that light today and that you will deepen us and grow us as we respond to your word. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.